Good morning, Creekside. My name is Paul. I'm one of the elders or pastors here at Creekside. And when, when Marv complimented you earlier on your rhythm, it's because I wasn't joining you. Because out of me, you either get off, off rhythm clapping or you get off tune singing, but only one at a time because I actually can't accomplish both. Um, it's the truth. So uh, I'm one of the pastors here, but I'm not employed by the church. For those that maybe haven't attended here long or, or don't know me that well, um, I volunteer my time to, to serve the, the body, and what I do for a living, my day job, is that I'm a forester. And I grew up in a logging family, and I just always loved being outdoors, and I played outdoors a lot, and, and I just I love what I do because I get to see God's hand in it, that, that we are able to take a resource that God provides for the world and we're able to produce a product that's, that's valuable to humanity for building and for society. And there's a, a continuing aspect to it that, that is generational. What we do, like, like the trees that I'm planting today, won't be harvested for 40 or 50 or 60 years. Like literally for the rest of my career, none of the work I'm doing will benefit me. And there's something cool about that. And you can see God's hand in it. And we still have to deal with nature and what it throws at us. And so it, it just kind of connects to the Bible and the, and the agricultural uh, society that, that was around at the time. And so one of the memories I have of being outdoors as a child is we had this park right up the road from my parents' house called Cascadia State Park. It's a county park now that the state transferred it over to the county. It's a beautiful park. I'd recommend going there. There's a short hike that goes to a really nice waterfall on Soda Creek. But the, the park started its life as the Geisendorfer Hotel in the late 1800s. And it was one of these resorts that people went to that were popular in the day that you would come to and you would either drink or bathe in this mineral water that they had that was supposed to have all sorts of healing benefits. It was supposed to cure what ails you and be good for you. And, and it's a lot like, you know, the, the snake oil essential oils they sell today, right? That <laughs> it's just, it's all nonsense, but it makes people feel better. And so there's still this amphitheater that is there that they built out of rocks and concrete. And down in the middle of it, when I was a kid, there's this pedestal that had like a drinking fountain on it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work anymore. But the water came up out of this pedestal, and you could drink from it like a drinking fountain, or people would bring jugs and fill them up and that sort of thing. And so uh, my dad, when we were a kid, he's like, hey, we're going down to the park, and you guys can, can drink the soda water. And as a kid, and I'm sure he did nothing to influence this thought in my head, but as a kid, I hear soda water, and I'm thinking it's going to taste like root beer, right? <laughs> and, and so I'm excited. I'm like, who has been holding this information back from me, that there's a, there's a root beer fountain? So we go down there, and we go to this, this pedestal, and I drink it with this in my mind. And it is the most vile, awful, smelly, terrible, bitter liquid you have ever tasted in your entire life. It's just nasty stuff. And, and so, it, you know, it kind of ruined my week. And, and the reason it did is because I had expectations in my head of what this was going to be. And they completely weren't realistic. And when I got there and I tasted the soda water, it, it was beyond disappointing. And a lot of, of what we feel and what we react to in life is based on our expectations, if on the way out today, I was standing at the door and I handed you a $20 bill, you'd be pretty excited about that. You're like, man, maybe if I catch a sale, I can get a dozen eggs. <laughs> but if, let's say I owed you $20 and I handed you $20, you'd, you'd just 
it wouldn't mean a lot. I'd be like, oh, good, you owed me the money, you gave me the money, okay. Different emotional reaction. What if I owed you $200 and I gave you, and you were expecting the money, maybe even needed it. It's like, well, here's 20, that's all you get. You'd probably be upset. It's the same amount of money, but, but your reaction changes because of the expectations you went in with. And we're gonna see as we get into our text today that expectations drive people's reality. And we're going to continue a conversation that started in our text from last week. And Jesus is going to be continuing what he started there. And, and he's going to continue to make the people of Galilee and of Capernaum in particular very uncomfortable. And he's going to say some offensive things to them. And it's going to end up thinning out the herd, so to speak. It's the same reason that they have me preach occasionally is, you know, the building gets tight and we need to open up some elbow room. But as Steve pointed out last week also, that, that this might make some of us uncomfortable, what Jesus has to say in this text. And it's going to press on our expectations. So to set the scene a little bit before I, I dive in and read, in verse 59, it, it kind of comes late in the text, but in verse 59, John shares that this conversation happened in the synagogue. So this is probably a situation where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And if you remember, there was people from around the lake that made this long journey to find him. So you would have had the, the teachers of the synagogue in the room. You would have had the regular attendees. And all these people crowded in, and the house was packed. And in our text, it's going to follow a pretty typical rabbinical teaching pattern where the rabbi would read something from the law, the first five books of the Bible, he would expound on it and, and kind of put it into his own words, kind of like we do today. And then he would share a verse or two from the prophets and connect everything together and sum up his message. Now, our text doesn't say, but there's some pretty strong hints in here. And, and it, I think it's likely that Jesus from the law was teaching out of Exodus 16, which tells the story where God provided food for the Israelites when, when they were in the desert. And it's pretty it's pretty likely that his prophetic readings were from Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31, some, some verses he references in the middle of this. So we'll see this as we go through, and I think you'll, you guys will see what I'm talking about. Three other things that I'll, I'll cover quickly that show up repeatedly in the text, because I think it's helpful to know some Jewish history, to, to see the richness of what's being described here, and to, to be able to connect it all, is that, and, and you know, some of you are new to the Bible. Some of you, maybe we've heard this, but we don't remember the details. So it was helpful for me to refresh myself as well. That Moses shows up repeatedly in the text. And Moses shows up a lot in John. John references Moses 12 different times in this book. And for the Jews, Moses was this like venerated patriarch in their, in their lore. That he was the one who led the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, he was the one who brought the law down from the mountain given by God and presented the law to the people. He led them to the edge of the promised land. And he's often credited with writing, being the author of the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch, the book in five parts. His story is told in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you read it, if you want to read it. But he's this towering figure in Jewish history. And in fact, the people were expecting because Moses had told him, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me for you. So they were expecting a new and better Moses. Number two is this bread from heaven. This is all through the text, this, this reference to bread from heaven and manna. And if you didn't know the story, when the Jews were, were in slavery in Egypt, God miraculously delivers them with Moses. He brings them to the edge of the Red Sea, 
parts the sea so that the, the Israelites can walk across on dry ground, and then the sea closes behind them, wiping out Pharaoh's armies. And God, at that moment, simultaneously does two things. He conquers the enemies of God's people, and he separates them from their past. There is no path back to Egypt. And so they're out in the desert at this point, and they're scared, and they're hungry, and they're afraid, and they're starving, and, and they start to grumble and say, hey, we were better off as slaves. At least our bellies were full back in Egypt. And so God hears their grumbling, and he feeds them with manna. It's this bread that comes down from heaven. We're told it tasted like, uh, like wafers baked with honey. And so God does this amazing provision for his people where they don't, you know, in that day, just scratching enough food out of the earth to live day to day will consume most of your life. They don't have to farm. They don't have to hunt. They just have to pick it up off the ground. So he feeds his people and cares for them and nourishes them and gives them life. And then the third thing you'll see repeated throughout these verses is that history repeats itself. The, the Jews in this story act a lot like their ancestors, where, where God provided Moses and the manna, and they grumbled. They grumbled about God's provision. They grumbled about God's man, Moses. They grumbled about the manna itself, and they grumbled about God's method of delivering them from slavery. And in our text, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or in the case of the Jews, maybe the olive or the fig doesn't fall far from the tree, because they just repeat the same pattern. So if you'd please join me and stand if you're able, I will, I will begin reading. We're going we're gonna to finish off the, ch- the sixth chapter of John, so we're going to do a lot of text today, but I'm just going to read verses 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him, meaning Jesus, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Lord, we thank you for this word that you give us. We thank you for this difficult word, Lord. I pray as we go through this today that we can see the riches and beauty and depth of what you offer in these verses. And... uh, yeah, just tune our hearts into what you have to say to us this morning. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And so our text begins immediately after the verses that, that Steve covered last week where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And, you know, he tells us, he tells us to the people that, as I said, they were reading God's word. These people are in the synagogue. They were looking for the Messiah. And in, in a couple of times in John already, we've seen this where they go to John the Baptist and they ask, are you the prophet? Are you this promised Moses that we're looking for? Earlier in this chapter in 614, they declared Jesus must be this prophet that we're looking for. So the people were spiritually hungry. They were under oppression. They, they wanted God to act and work. And yet they were here, here with the fulfillment of God's promises with this bread from life, or, uh, this bread from heaven, and they missed it. 
they were looking around at Jesus and, and they started grumbling, much like their ancestors in the desert. Like, man, if this is God, he's doing it wrong. Their expectations were being violated. They say, look, guys, we know this dude's mom and dad. He got here just like the rest of us. There's nothing special about him. And there's this passive-aggressive thing going on where they're off to the side grumbling and accusing Jesus of being a liar. And Jesus knows that they're grumbling. He's God. He, he can figure this out. And I love his response because he goes direct. He doesn't run off with his core disciples and start gossiping about the grumblers. He doesn't you know, write the people off as not worth the effort to engage. He doesn't play the victim and go make some tearful TikTok video about how he's just been so abused and everyone's just so mean to him. Rather, he goes straight to the grumblers and he, and he dialogues with them. It's something that's sorely missing in our world today is dialoguing when there's disagreement. He starts off in verse 43 and he, st- he tells them to stop their murmuring, to stop their, their complaining amongst themselves. And then he goes on to restate his lesson from last week. But there's, there's a couple of differences. One is he flips the order of things, where, where last week he declared himself the bread and then talked about the work of the Father. And we'll see he flips that around. He talks about the work of the Father and then declares himself the bread. And the other difference is there's some subtle word changes that happen here. So he starts off and he says that... Um, in verses, sorry, in verses 37 and 39 from last week, when he talks about the work of the Father, you'll see the, the languages that the Father gives. The Father gives people to me. And here in verse 44, he states the converse, just in case there was any doubt. Let me read it real quick. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That he, he's closing all the logical loopholes. He, he's looking at this thing from many angles and restating his main lesson and is telling them, that the human heart is so corrupt, there's got to be some new supernatural work on it before you can even truly hear the word of God, before you're going to want to hear Jesus. And then he appeals to the Old Testament, and he combines a couple of different verses. This is where he references the prophets. He quotes from Isaiah 54, 13 and Jeremiah 31, 33, and tells them, uh, there in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That, you know, he, he combines these, these couple of Old Testament prophets, and he, he kind of paraphrases a little bit and pulls a couple of, of verses. I don't recommend doing this. Like, Jesus can do it. He's the author of the the scriptures. He is the one that the scriptures are about. It's probably not a good idea that we play in this realm too much. I tried it. I combined Deuteronomy 16, 14 and Ezekiel 4, 12, and I got, you shall rejoice in your feast and eat it as a barley cake, baking it over human dung. (laughs) That, That there's a little caution here that, you know, we, we actually, that's humorous, but we see people do this all the time. They rip scripture out of context. And they, they twist its meaning to what they want. Jesus is able to do that because he understands the scriptures perfectly. And so don't take this as an example that, that is necessarily something that we should follow. But what he's doing is he's saying, if you're attuned to God, if you can hear what he's saying, it's because you're enabled and you're drawn in by the Father. And if that's the case, you will come to me. And he quotes from the prophets, and, and he's quoting from the law. 
And he's basically saying the same thing that he said in Luke, 40, uh, Luke 44, which is that the, the Old Testament is about me. I am the fulfillment of this book. God's work and God's word point to me. And if you can hear that, if you can see that, you'll understand what I'm saying to you. We've already seen this in John. We have evidence of this. From Sorry, this thing keeps grabbing my shirt. It's not working that well. So we've already seen evidence of this. In, uh, in John 1, verses 32 through 34, it says this. This is John the Baptist speaking. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, meaning Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, a man that Jesus himself said, this is the greatest man who has ever lived, didn't recognize Jesus. But he was in tune with God and God's word. And so when Jesus showed up on the scene, he recognized who he was. Same thing happens later in chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of, Nather- Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, Philip knew God's word. He was, he was drawn by the Father, and he could see who Jesus truly was. And then in verse 46, Jesus establishes his uniqueness, even among those who hear God's voice. And he says, no one has fully seen God except me. And he finishes in verse 47 with his restatement of the lesson and returns to being the bread. And he talks about belief being equated to eternal life, that he says that I am the bread of life. Look, great, great granddad of yours, he ate the manna and he died. Now, this may seem harsh, but Jesus is making, I think, a point that, that we, don't need, we should not miss here. He's saying that manna doesn't save. Manna doesn't provide eternal life. Manna is your daily bread. It gets you through the day. But don't confuse this. Gifts and grace from God don't get you into the kingdom. If you have grace of God in your life, it is, not, it is evidence of God's goodness. It is not necessarily evidence of the strength of your faith, that God is good to everyone. So don't think that the manna is that important. And then he makes a bold claim, restating it several ways in verses 50 and 51. I'll read them again for us real quick. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, if you eat this, there's no death. You'll live forever. And I am this living bread. And, and, and he does something interesting here. He says, anyone. This is, this is where Jesus is opening up the gospel and not constraining it to race. This is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Israelites. Anyone who believes, can have this. And then he equates the bread that he gives with his flesh. This is where this is where the train begins to derail because he was already probably upsetting the crowd, but by, by using the word flesh here, now he offends them. Now he, he offends them. And we'll see this in our next couple of verses. I'm going to read uh, 52 through 59. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So the Jews are grumbling again in this verse. But it's hotter this time. It's not clear in our text, but, but there's a word change here that happens where it's, it's almost warlike. They're, they're fighting mad at this point. And they start disputing among themselves. And, and maybe some are trying to figure out, genuinely trying to figure out what in the world Jesus is talking about. Some are probably just offended and ready to, to throw down. Some are intrigued, but there's clearly this turmoil that happens. And they ask this question, stuck in the literal, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus responds with another truly, truly. And when Jesus says truly, truly in, in, the, in the Bible, that is a clue to the reader that he's about to say something that's of utmost importance and really wants you to pay attention. And it's a tie in John 6 for the most places in the Bible where truly, truly shows up in one place. So he takes what he said earlier a step further. He says, says it a couple ways. He says, the Son of Man, you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then for good measure, he repeats it, but he substitutes my blood and my flesh in for the Son of Man. He says, whoever does this will have this eternal life. And the flesh is the true food. And just something fun here, as I was studying this, and, and you kind of get deep into commentary sometimes, there's a word change that happens when he says that you have to eat the flesh. The word here becomes trogo. I have no idea if that's how you actually pronounce it, but I said it quickly so you don't know anything different. But it means the munching of herbivores. So imagine like a cow chewing on its cud and chewing the He's saying you can't just like take a quick bite and swallow. You got to chew on this for a while. And, and the, you know, this just upsets the Jews. But what's I think more upsetting to him is then he goes on, he says, my blood is the true drink. And you may not know this, but in Leviticus, in the law, God forbids the drinking of blood. I think this is the first verse I got for you there, Edie. We'll pretend like it's up there. So, in Leviticus 7, God commands Moses, Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or animal in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off off from his people. And and Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood will abide in me. And abide is this like deep connection. It means to remain or to stay or to endure. It's translated different places or different words in different places in the Bible. But it's this like true and connected living between Jesus and his people. And then something cool happens in verses 57 and 58 that I want us to see, where Jesus is going to tell us what's living and tell us what's dead, and he's going to contrast the two. As the living Father sent me, and I live 
because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That, that Jesus tells us God is alive, and I'm alive because I'm connected to God. And you can be alive if you're connected to me through this living bread. But he returns to the manna there in 58 one more time and takes one more sledgehammer to their view of Moses and saying, basically saying, if he's so good, why is he so dead? That they ate the manna and they died. The bread from heaven is eternal life. You guys keep asking me for manna. You keep pursuing things that aren't going to give life. What you want, what you think you want, what you think will provide happiness, what you're seeking is actually going to give you death. That your, your worldview is jacked up. And then we're going to finish the chapter, starting in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the eternal word, are the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So this is where things really start coming apart. And the disciples ask this question, or this is a hard saying, you know, who, who can endure it? That the word hard here, you can take that to mean like this is difficult to understand. It's, it's maybe not the perfect translation. The NASB translates it as very unpleasant. But the idea is this is literally a harsh, offensive saying. Like we, we can't stomach this. This message is tough to swallow. And it's interesting to me in a way that they, they blow past completely the assertion that Jesus makes that he will raise people up and, and some of the work that he's going to do. But, you know, to be fair, some dude rolls in and says, hey, I get people to heaven. And you're like, oh, okay. And before you can, like, answer that, he says, oh, and by the way, the way you get there is tasty, tasty grilled Jesus. You might get high-centered on that as well, right? That, that, that is a difficult word. That is hard. But these folks that were cheering him on, maybe even a little happy that he was taking a baseball bat to the, like the religious leaders in the synagogue, all of a sudden they're falling silent. And they're like, wait, what did he say? I think we're following a lunatic. That this is becoming deeply offensive. The disciples are now grumbling. They have been disillusioned that Jesus is saying hard things, that maybe even he seems a little judgy. He wants me to do weird things. I, I don't know what to do with this. And Jesus, always willing to answer, answers them and goes, Oh, are you offended by that? What if it gets worse? What if it gets more offensive? I don't know if you guys caught that. 
But he says, what if you see me ascending to where I was before? And why would that be offensive? Because he knows his path to where he was before lies through the cross. And he knows that their expectations, their preconceived notions, those things that they wanted for him, they couldn't handle a Messiah that had to be crucified to get back to where he was before. He said, if you think this is offensive, that's nothing. And then he says, he says something interesting. He says, the spirit gives life, flesh is nothing, which there may be some dissonance if you see it in the chapter. He just got done several times saying his flesh was super important. You have to eat the flesh. Now he's saying, well, the flesh counts for nothing. So, so what's going on here is in this sense, what he's talking about here is he's like, you know, the flesh is that your focus of your thinking and the focus of the way you're living in your life is on the concerns of this world. That, like, like, what am I going to eat? Give me the manna, right? Jesus is telling him that there's a whole different level to what's going on. And I've been talking about spiritual things. You need to see beyond this world and understand that what I've told you is spirit. It's a deeper level that you can't see, feel, or touch. That, that it's how you make sense of what I've been saying is the key to true life. And he puts his finger right on the problem and says, there's some of you that don't believe. And he knows who is who because he's God. He said he knew from the beginning. I don't think it means he knew from the beginning of this chapter or the beginning of his speech. He knew from the beginning of time who would belong to him, who would not, who would reject him, and who would betray him. He says, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father grants it. And this is a harsh word, it may seem, from Jesus. And the disciples start churning away there in verse 66. You know, people that have seen the healings, they have heard the teachings, they have been fed themselves. Anyone watching from the outside would have looked in and called these people Christians. But they turned back and they turned their backs on Jesus. The implication here is that, is that the desertion is so large that we might be down to just the twelve that aren't running for the hills. And Jesus asks them if they're going to go too. And Peter nails it in verse 68 when he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's saying, you know, there is no one, there's no thing, there's no pursuit, there's no cause that we can turn to that is going to give us life and meaning. We believe Jesus. So, you know, I... I don't fully understand what's going on. I'm a little confused right now. I'm, I, I'm a little scared, but I trust you because I know you, and I know you are the Holy One that God has set apart. And our scene closes with Jesus reminding the disciples who chose whom. And I think there's, there's a reason for this. Lest they start to get arrogant, lest they start to think to themselves, well, I'm better than all those clowns that were here a minute ago and are leaving, Jesus is reminding them, no, don't hear what I'm telling you. I chose you. The Father enabled you to come to me. That it's not about you being smarter or you being better or those guys being idiots. It's about my work in your life. So as we come to the end of the text, you know, what's what's here for us in this, this message today? And I have three things that I'd like to point out. The first is that Jesus tells his disciples some hard truths. And they respond, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? 
because Jesus wasn't doing and being what they wanted or expected. You know, the crowds really were with Jesus as long as the blessings were rolling in, as long as the circus was in town, as long as you don't need anything from me, God, I'm happy to stick around. But the second the cost went up, the second that he started asking something of them, the second he started saying, this is going to get hard, when it got personal, they dropped out. Unless you think that, that maybe, you know, maybe the people in Capernaum, maybe they didn't, didn't, hadn't seen enough or didn't have enough knowledge. I'm going to give you a list of stuff that happened. This isn't all in John. It's recorded in the other Gospels. But after Jesus was, was chased out of Nazareth, he made his home in Capernaum. Capernaum was the home of Peter and Andrew and where he found Matthew, three of the 12 disciples. It's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law, the centurion's son, the nobleman's son, the paralytic, Jairus' daughter, the woman that was bleeding. It's where he cast out demons. It's where a fish was caught that had money in its mouth that was the perfect amount to pay the temple tax. He preached in the synagogue regularly, way better sermons than you're getting today. These people had it all, and they walked away. Everything was laid out before them. In fact, Jesus denounces them in Matthew eleven twenty three, and he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And if you don't know, Sodom is a city that was destroyed in the Old Testament. You know, their hardness of heart proves what Jesus has been teaching in this chapter, that it's God that enables the heart. It doesn't it doesn't matter how much blessing you receive that God's got God's to act. So I'm going to ask a question. What in our text today is a hard teaching for you? What maybe is making the exits to the building look attractive to you besides the sound of my voice? Or what have you heard from other parts of God's word? Or what have you heard from other of like brothers and sisters in Christ speaking truth into your life that has made it hard. Because God's word sometimes grates against our modern sensibilities in its teaching on things like marriage and sexuality or submission to authority in the home, in the church, at school, or at work, or how we should respond to, in, to injustice. Sometimes God's word or his people put their finger right on your sin, and it gets uncomfortable because you can feel the truth of what they're saying. Sometimes we're just seduced by what we want out of this world and our expectations, that, that we think that power is the answer. If we get our guy or gal in the office or if we just get the right laws, man, this whole thing's going to turn around and it's going to get so much better. Or if I get the right job or the right paycheck or the right spouse or the right kids or the right parents or the right teacher or whatever it is, that, that that's, that's what I need. That's the manna that's going to give me happiness in life. And our expectations are that as long as Jesus keeps delivering, I'm willing to get in the boat and chase him across the lake like the crowds did. But if he doesn't, I'm out. And maybe, you know, maybe it's people that, that end up chasing you off. You know, we all are sinners. We all need forgiveness. And if, you, if I haven't offended you, it's because we haven't spent enough time together. But, but the truth is that, that that is like what happens too. You know, you spend enough time in ministry, people leave the church all the time because the word of Jesus gets hard and who can stomach it? The second thing I'll point out is that, that we, last week and this week, 
we've been working around the doctrine of election these past two weeks. And it'll come up again in John and John 10 and other places. You know, Jesus had no trouble saying it, and John had no trouble reporting it. There's this, this dual thing that happens where God does the work, but as humans, we bear the responsibility for our decisions to come to God or not. These things coexist peacefully in the text, but I'll be honest, sometimes they don't coexist very peacefully in our hearts, and, and we struggle with this, right? And, and when I first studied this a long time ago and really wrestled with it, you know, for me, texts like this brought up more questions than they did answers. And so I, I just would like to address one of the questions that I think is one of the like prominent ones and, and deal with it, but this is theological heavy lifting that we're doing in these, these verses. So if you have questions about this, feel free to talk to me or Steve or Dave or the elders or, or you know, someone else that you trust to be spiritually mature. But I think it's easy to say, if, if, you, if you come to the doctrine of election, you say, well, why should I bother telling people about Jesus? Because if the Father's the one that draws and allows and enables... And those people automatically go to Jesus, and then Jesus raises them up on the last day. Like, why do I need to do the hard work? You know, God's going to take care of it, right? And and I think the woman at the well is the perfect illustration of this for us. This is from earlier in John chapter four, starting in verse thirty-nine. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. See, first, like the woman at the well, when you, when you grasp what God has done for you, our, you know, our spiritual life goes through ebbs and flows. And sometimes we're at low points, but when, when you like either grasp or truly remember all that God has done for you, you will want to tell other people about it. You'll have this burning desire inside yourself. Like the woman, he told me all that I ever did. You'll want to tell others. You'll feel a burning desire to help and rescue them and share what you have with them. And second... And you can see it in these verses. God uses his people to reach his people. That this woman's testimony, not some deep understanding of the Bible, not that she could quote chapter and verse from the Pentateuch, not that you know, she had all the answers. Her story of what God did for her was many people were reached. And they said to her, hey, your story brought us to Jesus. And then we saw for ourselves. That's why we do the hard work of evangelism, because that's how God works. Why does he work that way? I don't know. But he does. And he makes that clear over and over again in his word. And then third, what is this whole chapter all about? I mean, Jesus must have said it 10 different ways and 40 different variations about this flesh and the blood, and there's two things you got to do for eternal life. And sometimes in, in studying the Bible and teaching it, you can make too much of parsing a metaphor and trying to put too fine a point on things and create analogies, but I'm going to risk it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what, what I understood as I studied through this. 
when Jesus talks about his, you know, needing to eat his flesh, you know, that should maybe jog a memory if you've been here for us long, been with us long enough that you've you stayed through John, that where have I heard this before? In chapter one of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. You know, this book is about Jesus. His word became flesh. They're, they're tied together. Are you willing to accept that Jesus is who he says he is? The son of man equal with God. The fulfillment of all the promises in this book. That he's the one that the law and the prophets spoke about. That he is the new and better Moses. And when you, you know, we're going to have lunch here pretty soon. When you consume food, it literally becomes a part of you. It, it fuels the cells in your body. It becomes the building blocks of, of what we're built with. That, that when you consume it, that's what happens. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever eats this flesh, whoever digests God's word, whoever fills himself up with it, it'll literally become a part of you and you'll be nourished by it. And at a deep level, you'll abide with Jesus and him and you. And then there's the blood. The blood points to a sacrifice, to the cross. Are you willing to go further beyond just acknowledging God, Jesus is who he says he is and accept that he had to walk the path that he had to and he had to do it because you are a sinner? Because you're not just undeserving, you're ill-deserving. You have violated God's commands for you. You have fallen short of perfect, perfection. You can't repair it. You can't fix it. You can't please God. You need a Savior. You need the blood. You need the cross and Jesus' work on it. Are you willing to give up control and admit your weakness and not just say, Jesus is God, but I need him to be? That, And I'll go ahead and the, the worship team can come, come back up as I'm closing here. But before I became a Christian, I would say I was a very moral young man. And I, I did most things right. And I didn't, you know, I didn't lie and I didn't cheat. And, and I was at some level willing to admit, yeah, Jesus is probably God. I'm good with that. But I didn't need the blood because I was, you know, and I'll tell you, that's a dangerous place to be that I'm better than the next guy. I do pretty good. That's good enough for God. Even if you've spent so many years in church that the pew has a divot of your butt in it, that doesn't mean that you've taken this next step. Our text is full of people who followed Jesus, were willing to drive long ways, give up time and money and effort to get to be next to Jesus, and they walked away when he said, you've got to do these things. Right? Right? If you're in that place, it's like, God, you, you know him, you just don't need him. And just like the soda spring in my story at the start, right? Like, my expectations didn't change the soda. It was what it was, and Jesus is who he is. He doesn't need my affirmation of who he is to be God. I need to affirm him for me. I'll close with this from Romans. 10.9, because I think it's um, starting in 10.9, because I think it sums this up beautifully. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'll offer this just because I finished a minute or two early. And as I was sitting this morning preparing for this, I I flipped open my Bible. And sometimes this happens where God gives you a, a perfect page flip. And I ended up in Psalm 95. And the psalmist says this, Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. That God speaks, and some hear and are his people, and some choose to harden their hearts. So as you go forth today, you know, we will have some folks up here to pray if you need prayer. And, and that's, you know, maybe, you've, maybe God's been working in your life. Maybe prayer's been answered. Maybe you just want to share the goodness of God with folks. We'll have some folks up here on either side. They'll be wearing some lanterns. Feel free to, to come up. Or maybe, maybe you have something that, that's burdening you or some difficulty that you need to pray about because life is hard. We're, we're called to share each other's burdens. So, so I'll stick around if you've got any questions or you want to talk about the text or anything else. Otherwise, you know, there's some teachers downstairs that need to be rescued from your little monsters. And uh, I suggest you go get them and uh, go forth and have a good week, Creekside. Thank you.